The reading this evening is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. Thank you. If you'd like to follow it in the church Bibles, it's on page 1111, so all the ones. Acts 15, 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I just love the way Mandy reads. <laughs> so sweet. Lovely. Anyhow, good evening. Um, I've, I've, you know, much of the Bible is about failures, about failing in something, and then recovering God turning a failure into a success or into something new. And even changing the course of history occasionally through failures. And tonight's reading is no exception. It's about, a, it's about two spectacular failures. The first is the failure of, 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 of Paul and Barnabas to agree. And the second spectacular failure, the, that first failure, by the way, led to them splitting up, as we read. And the second failure is actually the cause of the first failure, which was the, 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 the failure of John Mark some years earlier, when he was still a young teenager, to be reliable, to, to actually stay with the course. He actually left um, early and left the mission and just packed up and went home. He went AWOL. And this caused Paul to be so disappointed that he said, I'm never having this guy on another cruise with me. He's never coming on another mission trip. And Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. And so this evening, actually, I would like us to be challenged, like allow ourselves to be, to be challenged by the failure of John Mark and the way that God used Barnabas, his cousin Barnabas, to help him to recover and to recover from this failure and to become a different, different kind of guy. But first, let's pray. God, our Father, we just ask you once again to open our ears and as we open your word and open our hearts so that each of us may receive whatever you may want us to receive this evening. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first thing to know is that we as Christians never treat failure. Well, let me start again. Christians don't use failure as a person, always as an event. Let me say it again. Christians, for Christians, there's failure as an event. It is never a person. 
because we know that God never writes off people and that throughout history he has been able to turn negative events, negative things, failures of people and change them around, as I've already said, into something triumphant, something victorious, even changing the course of history. And using ordinary people like you and me sometimes who uh, had previously failed him and who had failed others and who had even failed themselves and use them as instruments for renewing the world around them. And that's such an encouraging message. It's one that I needed to hear and that I really felt this week as I studied this passage. And as I talk about John, Mark, and Barnabas this evening, uh, your faith challenge, which is to believe, as I do, that God has what God has done with them and through them, he can do through you and me. Our story begins with a journey planning session. As Mandy has read, it's now four years after the first great missionary journey that we've been following over the last eight or nine weeks in the evening services. And Paul and Barnabas, no doubt with their maps spread out in front of them, are planning the next journey. Now, we all know that first century travel was pretty miserable. Travel was uncomfortable and it was dangerous and the roads were bad and poorly signposted and travelers were in constant danger from robbers and that's because in those days there were no, no travelers checks and no plastic cards you had to carry your, all your travel money with you in coins gold or silver so you became a, a wonderful target for robbers and in addition to this there were ac- danger of accidents on the road and hunger and thirst and wild animals and shipwrecks so if you were a missionary you might also face the additional danger of hostility and persecution, which, of course, Paul and Barnabas failed. But, you know, they considered it all worthwhile because they saw tremendous fruit. So wherever they went, thousands who had never heard the name of Jesus flocked to give their names, uh, give their lives to the Lord. And wherever they went along the way, their missionary path, they would stop sometimes for weeks or months, sometimes even for a couple of years, they, would, they journeyed, and they journeyed uh, from what is now um, Israel uh, through to uh, Cyprus into contemporary Lebanon, uh, through Syria, um, and to, uh, to Antioch, which is now uh, the city or on the location of the city of Antakya in southern Turkey. So it's a big, big journey in those days, huge. And our story begins with... Um, and by, by, wherever they went, by the way, churches sprung up, communities were formed, and, and there were believers there. And so our story begins with Paul saying to Barnabas, let's go back and find out how these guys are doing and how they're getting on. And Barnabas agrees and says, oh yeah, great, and let's take along John Mark. This caused a furious row, as we read, between Paul and Barnabas. So furious, in fact, that they decided to split up. The reason Paul, as I said, didn't want John Mark on this journey is because he'd abandoned them before, and it had really got to Paul. Um, In fact, he left at the second second place they visited, and you can read all about it in the previous, previous chapter, in chapter 13 of Acts. And we aren't actually ever told why exactly John Mark took off, but maybe he found the traveling too hard or the opposition just unbearable. He was only a youngster. He was a teenager. 
And um, something got to him, so he just upped and went home. And it's, it's quite, quite clear that Paul felt desperately let down, and he was not going to give him another chance. Now, you and I, most of us, must know what it feels like to disappoint someone and to so much that someone you admire doesn't give you another chance, just gets rid of you, sacked, made redundant, or whatever. It is really a terrible experience. And um, John Mark would have been in a pretty bad state, I should imagine, because he was devoted, actually, to, to, to Paul. But uh, somebody did give him a second chance. Barnabas picked him up, took him under his wing, even at the risk, as we see, of, of his friendship, because he was a tra- great friend and traveling companion of Paul's, and even at risking that friendship, he was prepared to take Mark under his, show, under his wing and travel with him. Before we go on, I must tell you a couple of things that are quite interesting about John Mark. The first thing is that he had three names. The first was his Jewish name, Johann, or Johannan, which is John, um, which means God is gracious. Uh, His second name was a Roman name, uh, Marcus, or Mark, which means warlike. And according to tradition, he also had a third Greek name, which was, wait for it, kolobadatolos, kolobadatolos, which you Greek scholars will know just means stubby-fingered. Now, before you laugh anymore, um, these stubby fingers were going to be used by God to write the Gospel of Mark, the first account of Jesus' life, the first Gospel, which acted as a source for many other uh, much other literature, including uh, the, the following gospel. So, you know, this man was going to be used by God. And, um, but one day, when... Uh, let me just move on. The other thing we know about, about, um, about John Mark is that his mother was a, a very rich woman in Jerusalem in whose house the local church used to meet. And as I read this, I thought, well, you know, home groups is not something that we invented in our time. This, they existed in the first century, and they were the way that the, the Christians used to worship. They used to have church, but they also had house groups, places where they used to go to worship. And um, nobody, the, the, uh, the, the scriptures don't tell us who Mark's father was. But as we know, Bible scholars are never limited uh, by uh, lack of facts. They always speculate. And so lots of people speculate who John's, uh, John Mark's dad might have been. And most people, or some of them, have said, well, he might be the man mentioned in Mark 14, verse 11, where Jesus tells his disciples to go out and look for a man carrying a jug of water, a water jug. Now, this is something you'd never find a male Israelite doing. So they think, well, he might have been a Roman. Uh, we also learned, as I've already said, that Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. It's an inter- interesting to note that although, and this is probably the most important fact I need to tell you, is that although John Mark is mentioned a lot of times in the New Testament, he is never mentioned as the most important key player. He's always a number two. Whenever you read about him, he's somebody's assistant. And I found that fascinating. And then I ran into a quote by the great American pianist 
and conductor and composer, the guy who wrote West Side Story, among other famous works. And um, his, his name, uh, he, he wrote but this Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein. And he said, he was asked once in an interview, what is the most difficult instrument to play in a, in a modern symphony orchestra? And without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. He says, I can find any number of first violins, beautiful, talented players. But the really difficult thing to, play, to find is a talented and dedicated second violinist. And yet, without a second violin, without good and first wonderful and dedicated second violinists, you can't have harmony in an orchestra. It just doesn't work. You want great harmony? You need great second violinists. And I thought, well, that, you know, that, does, that applies to churches as well. I mean, you know, uh, in, a, in a place like St. John's Black Heath, you've got um, gifted musicians, wonderful, great, great worship. You've got good preachers and good administrators. But, you know, unless we have the members, the second tier, the others, the ones who serve, uh, you know, working with dedication, the second fiddles, if you like, you know, there is no harmony in the church. If you ask people who've come to our church, like, who has had the most influence on your Christian life in St. John's? They will very, very rarely point at someone that was up front. You know. They usually point to someone who has served them a coffee, uh, who smiled at them, who received them, gave them a good welcome, who walked up to them after a service and expressed genuine interest in, in them and their lives. These are the people the Barnabases, if you like, that actually have brought people in, kept them in, and made them, helped them to grow in the Christian life. So uh, plenty of reason for us preachers to be, to be humble. In God's kingdom, the first, the least shall be the first. And I think in the, in, in, in the kingdom of heaven, the second fiddles will be the first fiddles um, will come because they're the ones who've really made the church great. And they're the ones actually who live out, if you think about it. It's you here at St. John's, the people who don't necessarily do anything up front, but who live out the Christian life, who set an example. You actually live out what we sing about and preach about. And that's what makes the difference. They, they see that we're not hypocrites, that we live out as a, as a body what we talk about uh, from the scriptures. But back to John Mark's story, it's clear that um, Mark had a commitment problem. And as we already saw, he went home and left Paul and Barnabas high and dry. Mark knew what it felt like to fail yourself and fail others. And um, in chapter, and he wrote about it. In, in, in chapter 14 of his gospel, he, he writes, um, he describes the young companion of Jesus who, when they came to arrest the master, um, fled in such terror that in the scuffle of all these people coming to get Jesus, he lost his clothes and he ran off into the night stark naked. And it's believed that Mark was actually writing about himself. He was that man. And then in chapter 14, sorry, that, that was earlier, in chapter 14 of his gospel, Mark recounts with enormous feeling, if you read it, how and poignancy, the way that the Apostle Peter's monumental failure happened, how he denied the master three times, and how the cock crowed, 
and how Peter just broke down and wept. You know, Mark really understood all about failure, but he understood about redemption as well. But the Bible teaches us again and again that God is a God not only of second chances, but of third chances and fourth chances and so on forever. And that as often as not, he brings positive outcomes out of very negative situations. I mean, following the great failure of Paul, I mean, everybody focuses on Paul and and Barnabas having this bust up and splitting. But in fact, even out of that, before they reconciled, God brought a wonderful thing. He created two teams instead of one to go around the world. And thousands more people came to, 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 to Christ than if there'd only been one team. So even out of that apparent failure, something good happened. And, um, you know, failure is a good teacher if you are prepared to learn from it. The Bible calls those who learn from their failures wise. But often we need someone else, very often we need someone else to actually lead us from failure to understanding failure to redemption. At a moment when John Mark must have felt rubbish about himself, Barnabas took him under his wing. And he took him on his own missionary journey. And you can imagine that Barnabas, without condemnation, without judgmental being judgmental, led John Mark by example, by Barnabas' own living Christian example, led him to a different place, a new place. And you know, every church, every church, every Christian community needs Barnabases. We all need them. A problem with our failures is they often leave us feeling so desperate, so discouraged, so alone with our problems that at times we just need not only wisdom from on high, we can read the Bible and we can say God can speak to us maybe, but it's the person that comes alongside us and helps us to get a perspective. Maybe a person who themselves have recovered many times from failures. It's that person that turns our lives around. Barnabas was naturally drawn to people that, that were needy and that needed encouragement. I mean, Barnabas means son of encouragement. And he was a constant help to those around him. And when people saw the way that Barnabas behaved and the way he acted and the way he served and the way people responded to his service, unbelievers, it says in the scriptures, actually flocked to become Christians. They wanted to have that life. They wanted to to be like that. And Barnabas was not only a great encourager, but he was also a man of great courage. For example, when Paul first arrived in Jerusalem, following his conversion, you remember, the local believers were extremely reluctant to admit Paul into their fellowship. I mean, after all, he'd been the fanatical terrorist, the one who'd persecuted them, and who'd arrested Christians, and they feared that this apparent conversion of Paul's was no more than a trick, which would enable him to identify more Christians and arrest more of them. And so it was, it was Barnabas, at enormous risk, actually, to his own life, who persuaded the local community 
that Paul's conversion was genuine, that this was a man who loved Jesus and who had changed completely. And it took him a while to do it, but he managed it. And the Barnabases in this church actually need courage too. Uh, we don't daily face uh, imminent death or persecution, but we, we also have to do things. And I've just been involved in the last few weeks in parish visiting. A number of you have. In fact, I can see Steve there who's been with me. Um, you know, it took us... We approached the, 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 the thought of going from house to house outside the safety of this building and knocking on people's doors. We approached it with a certain amount of fear and trepidation at first. Not because we expected it to kill us, but because we, when you knock on a stranger's door, you never know what's awaiting you on the other side, do you? And but to our amazement, and I mean, the, the others who have done this will witness to this, Philip and others have done it. You know, we actually got a good reception. Even hardened atheists will have said to us, you know, I'm awfully impressed and glad that you, you guys come out and meet the neighbors, meet people who live in the area. What a great thing to do. And, of course, people have already started coming to church, to come into this place. Maybe one or two of you are here tonight. As a result of us going out and visiting, you know. So, you know, it takes courage, but God blesses it. And, and for, throughout history, evangelism, when you take it on, when you actually do it in whatever form you're able to. Not all of us are big, upfront type people who can, uh, you know, knock on doors, but all of us can do something. And our experience of parish visiting really has reminded us, me that all of us can do something. We can't do much about Brexit or the situation in the world. Most of us here, one or two of us, may have a huge influence. But we can all do something to affect the environment immediately around us. London was voted in 2018 as the loneliest capital in the world. You've probably read it. Um, the Guardian and other newspapers ran endless articles of the effects of loneliness on our society, what a, a scourge it was. The, the media carried stories about the, uh, the, the effects of loneliness on individuals. I, I always remember the story of a man who, in the end, he had spent nine Christmases alone. And in the end, he was so frustrated, he put an advertisement in the newspaper asking someone to spend the tenth Christmas with him. Out of the hundreds of thousands of readers of the paper, only one person replied. And that person let him down the last minute and didn't come. And you know, when we think and we look around us, there are so many people that walk through our doors that are really quite needy, that have something. They may not be in the depths of loneliness or despair, but they do need, they need something more than just a friendly church. Most people don't need a friendly church, they need friendship. And that's something that you and I are quite good at offering, actually. But it, there's a cost attached to it. To be a friend means giving up time, using resources that we're short of. And I think the Barnabases of this world have to actually pay a big price, a big sacrifice for being Barnabases. But yet we're called to take those who have failed who have failed perhaps in a marriage, failed in their business, failed financially or in their health, and to give them a new perspective on their life, maybe to turn them around, maybe to help them to use their experience when they've recovered for the glory of God, to become channels of grace and God's love for themselves. A Barnabas Christ-centered fellowship, that's what we 
Barnabas-style Christ-centered fellowship is what I would love to see us being and being more of. And, you know, it does mean doing more than just chatting to people for a few minutes uh, here and there. We, the, we are called not just to talk to, after church to the people that we know and, and enjoy being with and chat to that are friends, but to talk to those that are different, that we don't really know and that maybe don't speak our language very well and certainly are culturally different. And we're called also, why not, to invite them out for a coffee or a tea, meet them for a drink somewhere. And those of us who have the resources and are able to do so might invite them over for a meal. When I first came to England, I was desperately lonely for three months, and I joined a church, and they were very friendly, very smiley people. No one ever bothered to learn my name, and no one ever would have dreamt of inviting me home for, for, for a meal. And, you know, we can be different. We can make a difference, but we have to be different in order to make that difference. In a word, we must not only talk about the love of Jesus, but we need to demonstrate that same love that Jesus showed uh, when he was on earth, being with people, being, showing, eating with people, walking with them, talking with them. And, um, you know, for him, there were no failures. There were only needy and imperfect people like you and me who just desperately needed the life that only he could give us. And first century, you often say, oh, well, you know, it was much easier in the first century. They had, they had much less to do. and you know, they, 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 they. It's not true. They had as much, their, their life was really harrowing. I mean, if you think first century, the problems that they face, we face today, they had, most of them, more pagan neighbors than we have. Uh, their working hours were particularly long, especially if you were a slave or a servant in somebody's house, you might not get time off, well, not much anyway. If you were a soldier, you know. But these were the people who became the church in the early church. They were, Christi- they were the Christians. You look at a church and it was full of people that really, their lives were pretty full. And they had lacked resources, most of them. And it's clear from Paul's letter that many of the new believers were really struggling and falling short. They, I mean, they struggled like we do. They were, they were busy and they were struggling and falling short. And that's why when in Romans he looked around at the churches and he wrote this wonderful phrase. I wonder if you, you can put it up for us. He wrote this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep... Our spiritual, your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Not much there about good preaching and good worship, is there? It's, but that's the life. That's what makes the life of the church. It's caring. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we have actually got to show that we care about the people who come through our doors and the people in our neighborhoods and the people we meet at bus stops. When they see that we really care, not to get more bums on seats at St. John's, but care because we want the best for them. We want for them the life that Jesus promised, life in the full, not an empty life, not a life that's superficial and that has, in the end, very little going for it, but life in the full.
So if you're a bit like John Mark this evening, uh, feeling maybe a bit of failure, f- feeling that you failed, then really just ask God to send you uh, Barnabas to walk with you, to talk with you, to show you how he or she was able to lay their burden at the foot of the cross. Because that's what we're called to do. Lay our burdens, our failings, our sins, our faint at the foot of the cross. Confess our sins, move on. New, new horizons. And we're all called to do that. On the other hand, if, like me, you are someone whose life God has snatched from the wreckage of past failures, then you can thank him, you can express your gratitude to God by becoming a Barnabas. Be a Barnabas at St. John's. You're much needed. And, you can, and if you're worried about what that means, just like we who knock on doors worried about what it means, you know, we can trust the Holy Spirit. We really can trust the Holy Spirit to give us the words that we need, to give us the time, to find the time in our busy lives that we need to serve others because we're doing his work. He'll show us where to find the time and to give us the resources we need to play our parts, for each of us to play our parts in turning around the lives and the failures of others to the glory of God.